you've got to show up at, at the table and show and tell them that you're going to be amazing for them because they're going to take a chance on you. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, the podcast for brands in the health and wellness space who want to be irresistible, not only to consumers, but to investors and retailers. Here we talk to successful entrepreneurs about the inspiring stories that help them start and grow their awesome brands. And we also talk to investors, leaders in private equity, and retail buyers about what makes brands irresistible to them. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am speaking today with Charles Forestein, who is the CEO of one of my personal long-standing favorite brands, Lesser Evil. I think I've been a fan since almost the beginning, so I'm really excited to be talking with you today, Charles. Oh, thank you very, very much. Yeah, I mean it. One of my favorite brands. So tell me a little bit about Lesser Evil and how long you've been there and what your role kind of is with them. Sure. So Lesser Evil is a snack food company. We kind of specialize in organics and less processed snacks. I've been at Lesser Evil for, I can't believe it's been nine years. My role, you know, I guess you could say I'm the CEO and president, but, you know, I kind of do a little bit of everything. But if I was to say really my, what my role was, at the beginning, it was innovation and sales. Now it's probably, you know, as we've grown a little bit, it's, you know, I probably still focus a lot on innovation, but I run around and put out a lot of fires. I love the branding side of things, you know, the marketing side of things. And I still do a little bit of sales work, but, you know, basically manage some of our key accounts, but much more of a targeted role than I've ever had, you know, before, before I was like, there was, I was doing a little bit of everything, but now I'm not so much. And where, when you came to the brand, uh, what, where was it at? Cause nine years is a long time. I don't think it, I don't think I had heard of lesser evil nine years ago. You know, it started off with a big boom. Um, it, it was started by Gene Hackman and, and Jim Kramer. Gene Hackman, the actor, um, you remember him from Hoosiers? Of course. Of and then course. Jim Kramer, um, I guess Gene's wife, Betsy, was was good friends with Kramer. And um, she was really into the, the Atkins diet and she loved popcorn. And she came up with this idea of using Maltitol on popcorn, you know, because she was very conscious about carbs. And uh, it's funny how we come full circle with keto coming back again. But yeah. Atkins, you know, was big kind of in that four or five year span between like 05 and 08 or 09. And yeah. then he had a heart attack or whatever. And it kind of disappeared. But, you know, they started off with a launch. They, they, they struggled a little bit. I think the price point and Multitol, if you remember, Oline potato chips. was a, I do. Yes. was a, a bit of a tricky thing with people's you know, digestion. And yeah. I think that was, that kind of hurt them a little bit too. And so we basically restarted over. We loved the name. It was a great name. And great name. we just had to discover what our meaning, what, what lesser evil meant to us. It was obviously meant something different than it meant for them, but it didn't become amazingly obvious until probably, you know, two or three years after we had the brand and you kind of discovered on your own. So we, we were a co-packer. Um, I think our identity came from owning or buying or getting into our own factory and starting to develop our own products. And that was really where we became our, our version of Lesser Evil. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's so when you came to the brand, were those guys involved or, or they had moved on already? 
you know, Betsy's still involved in a little way. She still owns a, a small piece of Lesser Evil, but yeah, they're they're not involved at all anymore in, in, in the brand. Okay. So I'm curious a little bit about your background because you you have a, an untraditional background when it comes to CPG brands and food brands. So you didn't come up through CPG marketing or sales. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of how it affected how you started to run the business? Yeah, great question. So I was, you know, a finance guy, um, but, you know, finance guys actually like food. Um, and, <laughs> and I think, you know, as my lifestyle changed, as I got older, you know, CPG fit me better as a person. I think, you know, I've talked about this in the past. I've been open about it. The, you know, the stress of working on Wall Street for 20 years and particularly the line of, of work that I did, which was trading bonds, definitely took a toll on my health for for a while you know but you know i did it for whatever 17 18 years and wow. um when i was getting close to 40 I, I was starting to suffer from some stress and um and i started looking for different things and obviously you know food is making better choices when it comes to food so i got you know i got into vegetarianism i was eating oh. pretty holistically i started meditating and then you know i just the lifestyle fit me really well. So when Lester Evil kind of found me, it was really a synchronicity. A friend of a friend's father was was selling the, the company. And, you know, I was like, wow, food, you know, better for you snack brand. This could be really interesting. And it spoke to me kind of, especially the name. And I just made the made the plunge. I didn't really know what I was doing. So I, I bought the company even before I quit my job. I, so I bought the company. I, I waited for a few months until I could quit. And then I, I made the transition. That's cool. That's yeah. an awesome story, actually. Um, it was a really good thing, you know, because I look at my life now, you know, 10 years later, and what I got out of buying Lesser Evil was so much more than I anticipated in terms of, of how it changed me for the better as a person. I mean, I still have a ton, you know, long way to go, but... I just remember myself in my late thirties. I, you know, I was kind of, I don't want to say I was living a shallow existence, but it, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't appreciating things the way I appreciate things now. You know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't in the moment. It was, you know, life was a bit of a blur and now things have slowed down a little bit and I see things a little more clearly. So I'm very appreciative that things happened like they did. And the brand is doing well also. So that's, yeah, I think we kind of both healed each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a cool story. So when you say the brand healed you and you healed the brand, what does that mean? So a lot of founders and, and owners of brands would say the opposite, that it's totally stressful and there's no break and you never get to breathe or think about anything else, but it sounds like you have a different perspective on that. I guess with the markets, you can't control what happens mm -hmm. um, in that as well. And then it's a lifestyle, I guess. You I mean New York City, you're, you know, out for dinner all the time. And when you're in this world and you're creating food and you're thinking about innovation and you've got to partner with people and the, the relationships are long term, the stress in, in my do in what I do now is making sure that I've got enough money to keep the lights on, you know, because it's expensive yeah. being in the in the food world. And that is definitely stressful. And it it is my least favorite part of the job is, you know, I come home and if, if money's been a focus that day and I come home and I'm, you know, I'm definitely worn out, mm -hmm. but I've been lucky, you know, we've got a fairly decent margin structure. 
and because we create our own, our food, you know, like I don't, the money side of things isn't as big, a, you know, isn't as big, it, you know, I probably have to focus on it four or five hours a week. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Whereas I focus on much more on, on the things that I really love to do. If I can just silo it, it's okay. It doesn't eat me yet, but you know, obviously I still have to deal with it. Do you feel like, it sounds like even though you weren't the original founder of Lesser Evil, you sort of are the re-founder of it. Would exactly. You say yeah. Yeah, but you're asking me if I feel like I'm the founder of Lesser Evil? Yeah, sort of, because it sounds well, like you're not just a CEO. It sounds like you came to the brand when it was sort of had the potential to go away and you took it and sort of revitalized it. Yeah, I would it. say it's a totally different company than it was before. Yeah. I mean, they The company before was used a co-packer, um, had a totally different you know view of the world than, than we do. And I shouldn't say, I, you know, I've got a, a partner in crime. His, his name is Andrew Strive. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's got a completely different skill set. He's, you know, he's an engineer by background. So a lot of our, what we've done, maybe a reason, maybe a reason why we haven't had to worry about money as I mean, we obviously, trust me, we've had to worry about money, but as much as some entrepreneurs is that, you know, we've done things really smart. He's, you know, we go out and buy used equipment and we find stuff that's kind of like hidden gems and we fix it all up and it's kind of a challenge and having that you know, that kind of guy who's that smart has made things a lot easier. So he's been, a, you know, you know, very important to the growth of Lesser Evil. So I just wanted to make sure I threw that in there. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't appear like it's just me. And can you talk about what the greatest challenges of, of, of coming and sort of restarting the brand have been? And even recent ones, if you've had recent challenges, I think it's interesting for people who are in the same position or, um, thinking about getting into the position to know what they're up to get up against. The biggest challenge is, especially in the beginning is capital. I mean, mm-hmm. no doubt. I mean, you did no one, I, you know, when people ask me when you get, they want to get in, I talk to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs is that the, the industry is super competitive and because it's so competitive and because there's so much money that comes into it, you know, the, the stores have figured out a way to extract as much money as, you know, from entrepreneurs as possible. You know, you want big distribution, you've got to be prepared to stand behind it. You know, you see these young entrepreneurs that get distribution at a, you know, a big chain like Albertson Safeway or Kroger or something. You, you need deep pockets and you need to, you know, you need to protect your products and you need to protect your distribution and you need to be a good partner. So it's constantly like, where am I going to find the money to, you know, to, to, to increase my sales? So, and the faster you grow, the more capital you're going to need. So you're constantly, you know, fighting that, that challenge. And then you fail a lot. I, I, I say that I can't say this enough. I mean, we appear like we've got some great products, but for every good product that we have, we probably fail five times. And sometimes it's very hard for an entrepreneur to fail because, you know, they're emotionally attached to their products. Right. And it's, you know, like, oh, give it a little, you know, give it one more shot. You actually have to be really nimble. And when things aren't turning, you just got to let the data tell you what to do. And if it's not working, you got to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to either change the branding, change the product, change the value proposition, but you got to change things quick. So I think when I, I think back in my finance days, what really helped me as an entrepreneur in the food space was was when I was trading, I was wrong a lot more than I was right. And what makes you a good trader 
is that you have this ability to to run the trades that you're, you're you've got right and to cut the trades that you've got wrong and to cut them really quick. So you're constantly, oh, I'm wrong there, I'm wrong there, I'm wrong. So when we got into it, we launched a lot of products, and I and I keep and I kept pivoting and pivoting and pivoting, and finally, over probably three years and seven or eight products, we we found one that really felt like it had good legs. Oh, and that is. I would say that was the bootable popcorn, which has become our lesser evil flagship. You know, that, was, was, that was the one that got me into the brand. Yeah, sure. it wasn't. It was we we had launched a line of popcorn before. We had a couple of lines of field, you know, feels good popcorn. We had chia pop, um, both that you know did well. But you feel it when when the velocity when you find something that works, you feel it right away. There's no, you know, I, I thought many times like, oh look look look, it, it's working, but when you find your right product, you can you can feel it. Your intuition feels it right away because it just all of a sudden it just kind of snowballs on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, the demand was there, and all of a sudden people were calling you and you know say, hey, you know, this is an amazing product. You know, I bought it here. Where else can I get it? Because I was traveling or whatever. And you're like, people are calling me and asking me about this product that they bought, and they they need to get it. You know, so you know, finally I felt like I had something that worked. So I want to go back to a couple of things that you said and see if you can elaborate a little bit, because I think they were really important. So you said when you start to get distribution in big retailers, you need to be a good partner. What does that mean? Well, I mean, retailers have a lot of overhead and it's they're in a super competitive you know, space. So for each retailer, it means something different. You know, if you're a high low retailer, you you know, you're you're depending on hot price points, you know, to drive traffic, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a natural food retailer, you're, you know, you, you're maybe not so price dependent, you're, you're dependent on showing customers incredible innovation, you yeah. know, and amazing seasonal items. Yeah. Um, if you're a convenience store that did something, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what it is, but every retailer has a different strategy and yeah. you've got to show up at, at the table and show and tell them that you're going to be amazing for them because they're going to take a chance on you. I mean, there's there's very limited off-shelf displays, especially in, you know, and everybody's competing for them. So you need to be like, I'm going to be the best possible partner for you. And I deserve that extra, that extra love, that extra shelf space, but I'm going to provide X, Y, and Z to get it. And how long? Usually that requires compressing on margin, doing some promotions, doing some seasonal runs. Maybe you're doing we do some private label for some some of our key retail. I mean, whatever it takes, yeah. we'll say to them when we sit down with them and like, how can we be the best possible partner to you? And they'll tell us like, here's what our, here's what a great partnership looks like. And then we basically have to monitor and make sure that we're we're living up to what we promise. So you make promises to a retailer and you've got to deliver at a certain point or you're not going to be there anymore, right? Like, what's the window of time that you get to prove? yourself to the retailers six months maybe yeah maybe not even time, you know right? you gotta you gotta jump right in yeah I mean, that's a really good question i think some entrepreneurs think that you can just put stuff on the shelf and it's going to sell right and that doesn't necessarily happen i mean there are those perfect you know products that have this have this amazing packaging and then just explode but that's like maybe one or 2% of the brands have that really special sauce, but even then, you know, they, they still need to promote. So yeah, you've got to get in there and you've got to do whatever it takes. You know, 
I mean, we've just started doing, it's funny you bring up this, but we, we've just started doing a lot of these different shippers. But for, for us, what that meant is coming up with a lot of different innovation, a lot of different package designs, a lot of different seasonal items, um, you know, whatever we could do to stand out, you know, mm -hmm. that, that was kind of, and then product differentiation, you know, we don't have, you know, we compete in a crowded space, but mm -hmm. we like to think that we bring different things, you know, being organic and, you know, being, you know, having the raw oils, the Himalayan salt, you know, mm -hmm. stuff. and we're lucky our package is a lot bigger. So it, it stands out pretty nicely yeah. on itself. That's the advantage of a five ounce popcorn bag. They're much bigger than a lot of the other bags on shelf. And we, we concentrate on building out these huge brand blocks. So we want to get five or six different SKUs with two or three different facings. So all of a sudden you walk into the snacks and you see like 18 different posters and they're all next to each other and you can't miss. And that almost acts like an off-shelf display because, Definitely. you know, so those are the kind of things that we work on. And if you're, if you're innovating and you're coming up with different oils and different flavors and stuff like that, you sometimes stores will give you that shelf space because you're continuously staying relevant. Yep. That's interesting. Where's your best, do you, is there something from a distribution perspective, is there places that you do better than others? Are you better in the healthy food store? So that so you're bringing up all the great hurdles. So typically, you know, an entrepreneur like me starts in the natural food space because um, it's, super competitive, but not quite as hyper competitive. And typically natural health food stores aren't demanding huge dollars. You know, right. you have your one case slotting or whatever, but you can get in there and kind of prove your concept. What takes a brand from good to great is being able to cross over from the friendly natural, you know, the health food stores and the whole foods and the natural grocery vitamin cottage and the Jimbo's naturally and the mothers and the new season and cross over into the targets and the publics and the, mm -hmm. you know, the yeah. that's a whole different world. And what sells mm -hmm. well in natural doesn't necessarily all, always sell well in conventional. And right. you're going to go from a $10 million brand to a $25 million brand. You need to get over. And that not only do you need a great product, you need brand recognition. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because people are, and you need you need to have a value proposition that's super tight because they become much more price conscientious. Right. Strong brand, great value proposition, and and some spending. You know, like you've got to be like, okay, we're going to do some two for sixes here. Two, for, we need to drive trial to get a lot of these people that don't shop at natural who've never seen your brand to buy it for the first time. So it's that's it's it becomes a much more expensive proposition on that side of the jet. You know, on that side of the 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 ledge i guess you could call it and do you feel like you've made that transition successfully uh, wow um if you'd asked me that question three years ago i would say it remains to be even two years ago it remains to be seen but i would say we are making that transition it it feels like we're starting to get that crossover um and we still got a long way to go, but I'm I'm optimistic. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm optimistic based on the, the the sales data that we've seen over the last twelve to eighteen months. But still yeah. got a long way to go. Okay. Um. What's like your most favorite success that you've had so far? Besides making the best popcorn in the world. Besides that, which I would agree with, that is a very big one. It is the best popcorn in the world. Um. I had to plug myself there a little bit. You should. I mean, I'll do it for you every day. <laughs> every day I'm introducing someone. 
Okay, so I would say probably what what got us over the hump was when, when we took our first um, growth equity investment. Um, we found a really good partner, and we went through the whole due diligence. We had a couple of near death experiences where you know you gotta find like where we thought we'd go out and find a partner and. We did all this due diligence and all this heavy lifting and we got, you know, one time we got to the finish line and it just the deal crumbled and it was, it was heartbreaking. It almost killed us because it was like six months of kind of almost taking your eye off the ball to try to get this thing done. You've got to yeah. make sure that you're getting into bed with the, with the right partner. And we found a really good growth equity partner who believed in our mission and believed in our vision and was honest and really wanted us to succeed. And it wasn't just, about enhancing their return and building it. You know, some firms out there can try to take advantage of innocent entrepreneurs because an entrepreneur thinks like, my, I, if I get money, my product's gonna take off. And it doesn't always necessarily work that way. And you should be less concerned with valuation at the beginning and more concerned with finding the right partner um, because that can make all the difference. So probably that was a big success. We took on a, a, you know, a few million dollars from a really good partner and that really put a lot of fuel on the fire. All of a sudden we could make some riskier decisions that ultimately picked up the trajectory for lesser evil in a big way. So that's an interesting comment because I've heard it from so many people on both who've had both experiences, the right partner at a lower valuation potentially, not necessarily, yeah. but... And then the wrong partner who was willing to pay more, but just totally screwed up the brand. So that's a really interesting. And we can talk about that because I think people would actually would appreciate this and might actually teach, teach people some stuff. So how do I phrase it? So an entrepreneur obviously wants, you know, we've all got egos and we, we want to say, you know what, someone really valued what I, I, that I, what I built and it put a really big price tag on, it, you know, so. <laughs> Let's say you got $5 million in sales and you would think your brand is worth $15 million. And you want to go out and tell it, you know, I, I, it's the same way. I raised money at a $15 million valuation. I've succeeded. Now, if you go out with too high of a, of a valuation in your mind, what will end up happening is you may get it. But what the private equity firm needs to do, because they need to have a, an enhanced return because they're thinking, okay, so if we're going to invest in a $15 million valuation, we need to make three times our money. So we need to be, see a clear pathway to 45 or $50 million. Yeah. And they may not see it right away. So what they'll do is they'll embed some clauses in your deal where there's a liquidity preference, let's say, which is a very common instrument to put in here where they'll protect their investment. They'll say, okay, we'll give you your, we'll give you your $5 million at a $15 million valuation but we'll put a 2X liquidity preference in uh, to protect our $5 million investment, which means you got to pay them no matter what happens, the first $10 million that, so let's say you, you get to $5 million in sales and then you get to seven and then you get to eight and you, let's say you're not doubling every year, your sales start to flatline a little bit and you're only growing at 20% a year. Mm -hmm. And something comes along and you need more money, but now because you're not doubling every year, Someone comes along and says, well, your $15 million valuation is really now more like a, an $11 million yeah. valuation, $12 yeah. million. And then you're like, huh, okay, well, the, but then the first investor that you had that has a liquidity preference that takes the first $10 million out, 
means you've got nothing left, right? Because your business is worth 11. They've only put five in at a, you know, but there's there's like a million dollars left in the in the stru- corporate structure. Yeah. So you're much better to have said, you know what, in that first investment, I don't need a $15 million value, you know, valuation. I need a $10 million valuation or a $9 million and take a little bit less money or whatever, but with no liquidity preference, or maybe it's a 1X, which gives you a lot more room to grow yeah. and make mistakes. Yeah. I, I don't know if I explained that well, but I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense because I've heard it on both sides. And when it's not good, it's really bad. It's really bad. It misaligns everything too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the investors have a different, you know, they don't really care if you succeed, right? Because they've got their money locked up. They've got a double at least. And they, you know, if they get a triple, that's great. But they've already got a fifth, you know, they've already got a, you know, basically a 50% return. Yeah. And if you go belly up, it's no big deal. You know what I mean? I guess they don't want you to go belly up because they don't want to lose everything. You know what I mean? But they don't, if you flatline, it's just not evidently clear to me that the return, the the synergy is exactly aligned. And how, um, where are you in that part of the brand's life cycle? Will you do it again? Are you done? No. So we're we're just about to close our second. Okay. We call it a Series A six. <laughs> um, it's a our second private equity partner. This one's a little bit bigger than the first one. The first one was friggin' amazing. We think this one hopefully is going to give us a little bit more, um, you know, and it has some synergies and some partnerships with uh, alternative distribution that may give us, you know, some, you know, a, a bigger, you know, bigger pipeline to reach customers that we've never reached before. Yeah. We're, we're excited about that. And what's the what's your goal for the brand? Like, where do you want to see Lesser Evil in in two years and five years? So our mission is to sell organic at the same price as conventional, right? And okay. even though organic is in popcorn is more than double the price. So a pound of conventional popcorn is, you know, like 20, 20 cents a pound. A pound of organic popcorn is about 58 cents a pound. So theoretically, you know, we should be selling our popcorn a lot more expensive, but because we manufacture our own products, we basically cut out the middleman. So there's no co-packers. So we compress on margin a little bit. We we invest in partnerships, like I told you, and we we innovate a lot. So we try to stay as relevant as possible. So we're not always competing on price, which is hopefully. So we do charge, there's probably a five to 10% premium that we do get in retail, but, um, my dream is 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 that lesser evil you know becomes you know the popcorn that everybody loves and that organic you know that it drives more organic purchases you know so i want to see i obviously want to see organic go mainstream i mean so what is that hopefully we you know are a 200 million in sales brand in in five or ten years from now yeah that would be my goal that's a good goal yeah it's a lofty one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's exciting. I mean, it is. A, I'm. I, I think I feel good about your chances because I'm a huge fan. And I, if you can do that, what you're talking about, if you can sell organic popcorn at the same price as regular, I mean, why not? Why not? Right. I mean, if the consumer yeah. is educated and knows that it makes a huge difference, and it does make a huge difference in everything we do, and you know, we try. We also put biodegradable packaging around our popcorn, yeah. and we don't charge really charge more for that either. Yeah. You know, so maybe we set an example to, you know, the Frito-Lays of the world. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, Frito-Lay, but 
you know, hey, it's time to that you guys do, you know, do similar things and offer that value proposition, you know, to your consumers. So that's a cool, that's a different goal. Like inspiring yeah. and, and motivating those big brands to do better. That's cool. Well, if it may if people, you know, if we grow as to the we're we're gonna grow on someone's on someone's time. We're gonna someone they're gonna replace, you know, smart food or skinny yeah. pop or whoever, you know, you know, that's that's yeah. at least our hope. And then they have they have to take notice. Yes, I would agree with that. So you talked about consumers being more educated and having a better, like that's part of the job, right? To make sure they understand the difference. And I think in popcorn, it's actually a really big difference, organic versus not organic, more than in some other places, isn't it? Yeah, popcorn is a, is a general. dirty crop um, yes. because it doesn't have a skin on it. Right. So there's a lot of herbicides and pesticides that are sprayed on popcorn. So yes. Yes, if you're, and I'm not saying this because I obviously <laughs> I sell popcorn, but if you're going to make a change, you know you don't necessarily need to buy organic avocados or organic bananas, but you do need to buy organic blueberries, organic strawberries, because the the, the pesticides and herbicides actually leach into you know into the food. So yes. popcorn is definitely a good one to buy organic. And do you feel good about the level of education? I mean, I feel like the awareness is growing exponentially. I think, we're on, I think we're on the verge, you know, COVID has done, you know, obviously it's been a tough year for everything, you know, for, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have passed away and a lot of bad things have happened, but if we're going to take something, I think that our future is really bright. You know, I think, you know, with what's going on now with the attention to climate change and um, healthy yeah. eating and stuff, I think in organics and, all that just I think the world is ready for you know a really nice health surge if that makes any sense. And I think we're gonna really see that in 21 and 22. I think so too. I mean, I think that people are talking about their health in a completely different way. Like the level of importance has shot up so dramatically on just having the a basic level of health and wellness awareness that just wasn't there. I mean, it yeah, was because now you people realize it's your shield, right? I mean, yes, it matters. You know, you know, you want to go out and you want it, you want to get that vitamin D, and you want to be outside, you want to be healthy and stuff like. Because viruses are around us all the time. COVID, yes, it's a nasty virus, but there's millions, billions of viruses around all the time, and this is not going to be the last one. And your best defense is eating well, sleeping well, getting a lot of exercise, and drinking a lot of water. I mean, yeah. if you take care of those things, the chance of you getting very sick goes down in a big way. I mean, obviously there's freak things that happen, but that is, you know, that is the best thing you can do to stay healthy. Yep. I would agree with that. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's amazing because something had to happen to wake people up in a way. I mean, it has yeah. woken people up for sure. And I don't think I've seen anything wake people up like this past year. Yeah. Yeah. That's it makes cool. you realize how much you miss people too, you know, oh my goodness. people you love, like you take those for granted until you, I haven't seen my parents in, in, you know, in more than a year. And I mean, it's been, I mean, I now call my mom every morning, you know, it's just, she's in her seventies and I'm so fucking, th excuse my language. That's okay. So, so thankful that yeah. she's around and, you know, then I get to talk to her and, you know, it's like, so I can't wait to, you know, to squeeze her like there's no one's business. Yeah. Yes. Well, I hope it's soon. It seems like it should be. Right? It should be. I'm hoping, you know, she lives in Canada. Unfortunately, the borders are still closed. Oh, so we'll oh. See I detected, is that, do you have an accent? What's up? Are you from Canada? 
I'm originally from Toronto. Yeah, Toronto. I've okay. been here for, you know, a long time though. So I, I think I moved here when I was 23. So I've oh, wow. okay. been 27 years or something yeah. like that. But my yeah. Canadian accent was, was way stronger when I first moved here. I hear it a little bit. <laughs> oh, so you can't go yet. No, but it's it, it'll come. It's coming. Yes, I hope so. I hope so. Okay, is there anything you want to add? I mean, there's so much good stuff in here. And I think so much good advice for people who are thinking about doing